0: Of the war. Just before 10 a.m., Tyler's ship approaches the warehouses, cranes, and piers of Hoboken. Little by little, the silver oak hull, lapped by sewage-darkened water, rumbles alongside the third of these piers. Soon, the gangway is lowered. Thuggish men, who could be mistaken for gun-toting bit part players in a Hollywood crime movie, oversee the dockers set to unload the vessel's cargo. But first, a posse of uniformed customs officials boards the ship. Unlike his fellow passengers, Tyler isn't permitted ashore. He has to wait for over an hour before being escorted onto the pier by customs officers. Always a natty dresser, he's wearing a thick, double-breasted navy blue overcoat. It's buttoned against the cold. One of his pockets is pregnant with letters from his mother, written to him while he was overseas. Under his arm he carries a small portfolio. In his spare hand he clutches a fedora that might otherwise have been flipped off by the wind. He also has with him a temporary passport, issued by the U.S. Embassy in London. Guiding Tyler towards the weathered two-story wooden shed that runs most of the pier's length is an aging, thick-set customs official. As Tyler marches confidently into the building, there's a flicker of movement across his peripheral vision. Seemingly unaware of the person taking aim at him, Tyler breaks into a sly, narrow-eyed smile. The expression of someone who's been in a tight corner yet believes he has emerged intact. Six and a half years earlier One On Tuesday, the 23rd of May, 1939, a diminutive, slim-waisted woman was heading for an 8 p.m. event at Caxton Hall. Among London's best-known venues for political rallies, exhibitions, and registry office weddings, it lay within easy reach of where she lived and worked. Thanks to the warm sunshine, she could have been forgiven for imagining she'd somehow skipped a few weeks and advanced into midsummer. Her name was Anna Volkov, though she liked to introduce herself as Miss Anna de Volkov, the prefix to her surname projecting an aura of Gallic refinement. In keeping with this affectation, sometimes favoured by Russians of her pedigree, she rarely allowed herself to be seen wearing anything than an understatedly chic Parisian-style black dress. She made a habit of pinning a brooch just below its neckline. The colour of Anna's dresses conveyed her politics, black shirts and blouses being the uniform of Italian and German fascists, not to mention their émigré Russian counterparts. Until a few years ago, such garments had also been worn by the so-called black shirts, the British Union of Fascists, recently renamed the British Union. Anna's discreetly elegant dress sense jarred with her bodily inelegance, a look of chastened middle age having lately supplanted her former girlish prettiness. Thirty-six years old now, she had a wide, high-cheekboned Slavic face— it incorporated a snub nose, lips as tight as a freshly stitched buttonhole, and soulful green eyes, accessorized by tapering, vigorously tweezered eyebrows. Her features were framed by unruly dark auburn hair, which she was inclined to chivy into a shortish, permanent waved coiffure. Except for applying a cupid's bow of lipstick, she tended to refrain from using makeup not even a couple of dabs of rouge to assuage the startled pastiness of her complexion. Further diminishing her already circumscribed allure was her stomping, resolute gait, immune to the deportment lessons she'd taken as a child. More than two decades on from those, Anna's life had been unravelling. Her troubles gave credence to that old superstition about Opal's bringing bad luck. A great friend of hers had, after all, paid to have an opal set into the centre of the ring she wore. Whatever the origin of her problems, there was no disputing that 1939 hadn't started well for her. She'd been given no alternative but to shut down Anna de Volkov haute couture modes, the West End shop that sold her own creations. Frocks, suits, hats, jumpers, evening gowns.